This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Corporate Success, A Fresh Look at Strategy. And the author is Albert Vermeulen. And Albert joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Albert. Uh, Good afternoon, Steve. Uh, Thank you for uh, hosting me this afternoon. Great to have you with us. I'm going to read some things you've written about your book, just so everyone understands our focus. You say this, Organizations spend huge amounts of time developing strategies, and yet so many of them fail to yield positive results. The truth is, even the best strategies will not succeed if they are not fully adopted. And that's what this book is all about, is to understand how to get all the employees, everybody on the staff, to buy in, right? Steve, that is, that is absolutely true. Uh, we have seen so many um, iterations of strategies throughout so many organizations over the years, and one thing that pops up every time that we work with an organization has to do with the strategy, the adoption, and the fact that they did not achieve their goals, uh, and the strategy never realized the uh, outcomes they intended to have. And this, this whole circle of, of building a strategy and not achieving the return on investment triggered my interest in this topic, and that's where I'm focusing on. Give us some details on your background. Uh, Steve, I, uh, I'm a born uh, South African, uh, worked for the government and um, in the military sector there for uh, nearly 20 years, uh, specialized in uh, telecommunication. Um, and uh, at the end of my journey there, I uh, came to the United States to um, study here and uh, enhance my second career. Um, and I took all the lessons I've learned in the transition of South Africa and the, and the time that I spent there to actually come and uh, see how I can apply it over here. I uh, joined the University of uh, Purdue, where I studied and uh, was teaching some classes for a couple of years. Um, and then I entered um, into consulting uh, and had uh, the wonderful opportunities to work with great consulting firms over the past years till I started uh, my own company in, uh, in focusing on strategy very specifically. So I live here in Phoenix. I enjoy my life, and uh, that is a little bit more about myself. And thus also, because of all your experiences, uh, you felt you needed to publish this book to, to really focus and help others to focus on how to be successful with strategies. It's, it's, a, it's obviously a huge effort just to build a strategy, to create one. Right. Um, you know, what happened, Steve, is that as uh, my consulting firm uh, grew and developed, I, I, I had many people approaching me and say, you know, they want to join uh, in my successful ventures. And in doing so, they started to ask me questions, and, and they asked me specifically, what are you doing and how do you do that? And then I came to the realization at the end of last year, you know, I have to document my successes and the successes of the companies as they achieved it to the letter so 
that I can actually transfer my knowledge to other people in a very meaningful, clear, and compelling way. And uh, that, that actually uh, allowed me to sit down, take a time out, and actually write the book. So I'm writing the book and not only for myself, but I'm writing the book for the organizations and those interested in strategy, my staff, so that they have a clear sense of the direction uh, we gain successes in and uh, where we want to focus in the future. You talk about psychological connection, structural connection, and contractual connection. And before we get into some details about those connections, you also say earlier in the book, you have a title, Change Enabling Milu. Is that right, Milu? It's a milieu, yeah. Okay. What do you mean by that? That's obviously a very important part of your strategy because of the amount of, you get a whole chapter on it. Yes, Steve, you know, the best I can uh, share this in a, in a concrete sense is um, it's very difficult. Remember the days when you were at university and you want to go into your room at night and actually catch up on some study and preparation for the next day. And while you're sitting in the room, uh, your roommate barges in and there's just a, a whole gamut of activities uh, in the dorm room to the point where you can actually not even concentrate to do your work. Now, uh, a change enabling milieu very specifically focuses on creating an environment in where you can actually sit down and study. Not all organizations have uh, a change enabling milieu where it allows them to actually implement their strategy. So a great deal of, of focus on my, on my book is actually the, addressing the question, how do, you, how do you alter, how do you shift, how do you create an environment in your organization where your strategy can, can be implemented successfully? So it's much more than a simple change management activity to uh, implement a strategy. It is much more complicated than that because, Steve, if, if it was as simple as a change management activity, we will not address the issue about why so many strategies fail and never come to fruition. Uh, in my years working in that field, I quickly realized it is far more complex on the one side and far more, uh, it needs a far more robust approach to be successful than just purely uh, a change management approach. What does it mean then to adopt a strategy? Uh, give us those kinds of insights. Well, adoption um, focuses on the whole notion of uh, abandoning the way that I did something in the past and embracing uh, the way to move forward. Adoption means literally a, a, a lifestyle change, if I can if I can put it this way, uh, many companies like in the healthcare industry, they uh, utilized um, paper, most probably 80% uh, of the time, paper documentation to track uh, hold of, of patient care. Um, and then that was switched out with electronic medical records. And adoption means that I'm going to move away, totally away from the paper, paper environment to a paperless environment in such a way that it is sustainable over a long period of time. And adoption means I'm not going to revert back to doing it the old way, but I'm truly going to embrace the new practices moving forward. Let's talk about why people don't adopt new strategies. Is this the psychological connection you have in your book? Um, Steve, yes. Uh, as we did our research and experiences in organizations, 
we, we actually pinpointed to three major reasons why people don't adopt uh, strategies or changes um, um, in organizations. And I highlight three specific connections. I describe them as connections. And the first connection is that of a psychological connection. And the, and the purpose of that psychological connection is to unlock the individual's willingness to change their behavior. Uh, people are not always willing to change their behavior. They, they hang on to what they have done in the past. And a, a psychological connection actually get them to the point where they are willing to abandon what they have done in the past. A structural connection is focusing on the details of what is it that they should change and how does it incorporate it into the organizational business planning processes, the business activities, and their day jobs. And the contractual connection is really building in something that is unique, and that is to build in accountability, but truly link it and align it. So those are the three connections that, in our experience working with large corporate organizations, that if they have these three in place and they maintain it to a high level, of functionality, they are um, securing their successful implementation and adoption of a strategy. Well, we don't have time in this interview to go in detail, in depth with all three connections, but let's focus on the psychological. That seems like one of the uh, biggest hurdles. Uh, it's hard to uh, break habits. It is hard to break habits, Steve. Um, we have learned that there is a in the psychological connection, if we, you really want to connect new concepts, new ideas with people, you have to kind of take them on a little journey with you. And um, we, we take it that people are, are traditionally in a status of unawareness, where they, where they are doing their own job every day, and they don't know what the board and the CEO um, has planned in their strategy. So because they're unaware of what is happening, um, they, they are not going to change anything. And our first goal with a psychological connection is truly to build awareness around it. And when, you, when I say we point uh, develop awareness, we don't expect the person to change anything at that time. We just want him to be aware of why they, what they are doing today is no longer feasible for tomorrow. And we are starting to, to, to put the main arguments on the table as to why we need a course direction and a change. And as we build the awareness, the next step, the logical step then, because these things are kind of sequential, is for them to ask the question, okay, but how do I fit into that picture? What is it that I personally have to change to make it happen? And then we are building the understanding in the person's mind as to how they are going to have to change what they do to become successful. Now, Steve, you will know that the fact that I know I have to do something different is one thing. The fact that my boss is going to, under, to, to underscore and help me to do it is a totally different thing, and that is why confirmation of that change is so vital. And uh, what, we, what we intend here is to take back the changes to the sponsor or to the, to the supervisor or to the leader and say, are you aware that this is how I have to change my day-to-day -day activities to actually promote the strategy? And once they understand that and they have that confirmation, we push them into an experimental phase. And this is actually the first time that they will start experimenting with new things that's aligned with the strategy. This is critically important because this is the first time they will test drive those new things they have to do to make the strategy work. In the beginning, when we built uh, awareness, 
we share it with them and say, you know, if you do this, here are the gains. In other words, it's, it's like a diet. If you go on this diet, you should lose one pound a week. It's only when they, Steve, it's only when people see the results that they actually move to adoption. And this is, this is one of the key elements of strategy failure that we have determined in the past, and that is the psychological connection is not maintained to the end. What happens is people are aware, they start to change, and they never see the results, and because they don't see the results, they relapse and go back the old ways. And in the first chapter of my book, I actually address it, that the strategists just fade away and you don't even see them, um, uh, the traces of them in the future. So the psychological connection unlocks the individual's willingness to actually embrace the new strategy, and that is critical, and it should be maintained till the end and not stopped before it's done. And it sounds like increased communication between the CEO or other uh, mid-level management and staff and uh, line workers. Well, Steve, you know, uh, communication is the vehicle of how these messages should uh, should fly up and down in the organization. But when you go through the book, you will see that there is a very specific way in which you do that. And uh, I highlighted that it, and, and by saying the very first thing that you should address is why this strategy is needed. And you, you use communication and all the vehicles in the organization to do that. You bring up a good question here, Steve. Not all the communication plans and activities in organizations can actually help to implement the strategy. And we have found that nine out of ten times we have to improve their internal communication before we can actually implement the strategy. Critical good question there. And because the marketplace is so unforgiving today, it's so competitive, uh, as you put it, you have to get it right the first time. Well, Steve, uh, strategies normally take, uh, you know, I'm talking about corporate, uh, big corporations. Really, a strategy takes about uh, three years, 36 months to, to hit the road and start delivering the results. And I'm not talking about an M&A that has a quick uh, return on, a potential quick return on investment. But when you do a strategy change an organization, it takes 36 months or so to actually get the results on the, on the table. And what you do is if you don't do it right the first time, you, you just delay it and delay it, and, and what happens is that the person in the market that does it the first time right out of the gate gain a significant competitive advantage on other firms, and therefore strategy implementation and the driving the adoption of it is as fundamental as designing a good strategy. And so strong leadership is critical. Without it, you can't sustain the change. We know, Steve, that um, everything pivots around the, the leadership here, and we have we need this very specific leadership in the implementation and driving of adoption, and that leadership should stay the course and not change the strategy underneath the feet of the people that is Im- busy implementing. We have seen so often that leaders start implementing the, a strategy, and before the strategy could actually grow, before the, the seeds could actually come surface on the ground, they start changing it. Eventually, the whole strategy fails. So sponsorship, leadership is fundamental to the successful adoption of strategies, and lots of organizations struggle where that point is concerned. The title of the book, Corporate Success. 
A Fresh Look at Strategy. And the author is Albert Vermeulen. And Albert, tell us how to get your book. You know, my book is, uh, will be at Amazon.com or uh, Barnes & Noble of iUniverse. Um, you can visit my, my website. And, uh, you know, and, uh, it's also available on e-books. So I encourage the readers just to Google it and find it on uh, Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble or iUniverse. Thanks for being with us, Albert, on iUniverse Radio. Uh, Steve, thank you for um, having me today. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V I K T O R and I movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central on Toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, E-Patients, Live Longer, The Complete Guide to Managing Your Healthcare Using Technology. And the author is Nancy B. Finn. And Nancy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nancy. Hello, Steve. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're going to learn a lot from this, uh, especially those of us of... Uh, seniors and others who face uh, some uh, challenges with our physical and uh, makeup or the uh, maybe facing some uh, critical medical issues. This is a how-to book. Let me read what you have written about e-patients live longer. You say this, this book provides individuals with all of the information needed to understand how to become an empowered and educated consumer who understands the right questions to ask to get what you need from your providers for more efficient, more economical, safer health care. 
Well, that is certainly uh, sums up everything we need, at the, uh, especially seniors and others who are facing critical medical issues. Tell us about your background, Nancy, and the reason you decided to publish this book. Well, for many years, I was involved in both academia and in corporate America, uh, where I was uh, responsible for developing uh, in academia courses in using the new media of communication uh, more effectively and in corporate America in developing products and services that involved using new media. By new media, I'm referring to the Internet, obviously, email and uh, digitized um, communication technology. And um, when I retired from corporate America, I felt that um, I would be able to um, sort of leverage all of the in- information and all the, the understanding that I had uh, accumulated over the years by writing this book that would focus on how communication technology changes the way we as a society in America live and work. And after a series of interviews over a period of time, I looked at what I had a Accumulated and realized that I really had two books. One was more generic type of book. Uh, this this being my fourth book that I've written, and uh, one that was focused on healthcare. And when I looked at the healthcare uh, industry, which had lagged way behind everybody else in implementing communication technology for the not for the diagnosis of disease, but for the operation of how healthcare functions. Um, the healthcare was really just um, recently uh, beginning to implement these technologies, and it seemed like a very hot topic and a very interesting and important uh, message that I could convey through this book. You want to help us create our own personal health record. That is very vital, isn't it? Yes. It, I believe it is important that... Um, our health information is in a digitized record. Uh, there are two facets to that. One is is the physician who keeps a record of um, all of the notes and all of the tests and labs and so forth that uh, result from a visit to the doctor. And that record is really um, available to patients. Um, it, it's, it's really their record, but generally we don't uh, have access to it. Uh, and the flip side of that is that Patients need to create their own <clears throat> personal health record uh, where they have all the information right at their fingertips. And there are many uh, options for creating a personal health record. Uh, you can write it down on paper, of course, um, but there are also uh, many different websites that enable you to fill in these forms, which lists all of your medications, all of your tests, all of your diagnoses, all of your allergies, etc. And um, then you have that available to you when you go and see your doctor. Um, a lot of the health insurers, the Aetna's, the Blue Cross's, the United Health, um, and many others, are also making available and actually urging their clients to create a personal health record that would be populated with um, administrative data claims, uh, material uh, such as medications, lab test orders, um, but also with all of the information that you supply um, that you know uh, is part of your health um, background uh, and your health history. Uh, There are also opportunities to put a health record on a smart card, 
um, or on uh, various online hosted sites uh, such as Microsoft Health Vault. Um, so the, there's really many ways to create a personal health record, but it is something I emphasize in the book. Um, I provide the different uh, ways that you can do this, and I emphasize that people have to make health care a priority in their life, uh, and they have to be uh, fully able to convey their, their health record when they're faced with a health issue um, so that nothing is left out and there won't be uh, errors made or, you know, um, uh, tests done that are unnecessary. Well, it's a whole different world today and limited time to see a doctor, and we just need to be more proactive, more in control. Yes, and that's what my book is about, Um, having the patient, uh, the e-patient, stands for Empowered, Engaged, Educated Patient. And uh, we have to be more proactive uh, because the healthcare system in our country is set up so that you have a 15-minute window when you see the doctor, and you have to maximize, you as a patient have to maximize that time and be able to uh, make sure that everything you need to ask um, gets covered during that visit. Uh, make sure that you are able to find out the resources that would be recommended, and then you have to go forth and research uh, a lot of the uh, health issues regarding a particular condition um, and what the treatment options are because the doctors in that 15-minute visit are busy uh, trying to find out what's bothering you and then making a diagnosis and don't have time to give you all of the uh, issues and options that you need as a patient to make a uh, sound decision on uh, what uh, particular treatment options you will follow. So you need to um, really be tuned into all of the different uh, websites where um, there is reliable, credible information. The book covers that. It uh, gives a very comprehensive list of websites uh, on every possible health condition uh, and some of the generalized sites as well uh, we, where you can find good information that you need to um, be an educated patient who knows how to deal with your issues. And to help us choose the right doctors, even the right hospitals? I cover that as well. I give links to uh, various sites that rank doctors, rank hospitals, um, very important issues regarding patient safety in the hospital, uh, and I talk about those issues and what you as a patient need to understand and what you as a patient need to be aware of um, when you, one, have to choose a hospital. Uh, some of the questions to ask uh, that I cover in the book are whether or not you're covered, um, whether your health uh, insurer will cover the particular hospital that you want to go to, whether your doctor is on the staff, because let's face it, when you're ill and in the hospital, you really want to see the friendly face of your own doctor, not um, the hospitalists who are on staff. Uh, you want to know that your doctor can come in and, and visit you. Um, you want to make sure that the hospital has done the procedure that you may be going through many, many times. Um, all of these uh, issues are covered on various websites where you can go and check. Uh, and the book uh, gives you the links to those websites and addresses all of those questions. And, of course, a very important part of the bottom line of health care is the cost. 
Yes, it is. Cost uh, today is critical, and uh, it's a very confusing area um, for people to deal with because there are so many different plans and there are so many uh, different um, bureaucratic issues that are concerned with managing your health care costs. Um, and what I've tried to do is cover the, the types of plans that uh, you might encounter uh, from your employee or uh, I'm sorry, from your employer, and what kinds of questions you ask about various types of plans. Um, <clears throat> and I list those questions, uh, and I cover uh, everything from an HMO um, to uh, some of the issues around Medicare and Medigap. I talk about consumer-directed health plans and the reasons why you would want to have a health savings account and a health uh, flexible spending account if you have that option from your employer. And all the new so, communication tools, uh, along with the Internet, of course, the smartphones that can assist us as well. Well, yes, the smartphones are going to play a, um, more an increasingly vital role in health care for people. Um, we all ha- seem to have them. And uh, the apps that are being developed um, are coming in by the dozens on a daily basis. Uh, the healthcare apps, uh, particularly, are important. Uh, there are apps that enable you to create a personal health record that you can upload to your smartphone, which you always carry with you. Um, you can put in emergency contacts into your smartphone. There are ways your smartphone can be used, and I talk about this in the book for uh, telemonitoring purposes. If you're homebound or in need to connect um, with your doctor and, and send through your um, blood sugar reading or your um, heart rate or your um, blood pressure, um, that can be done through a smartphone. Um, it's just incredible what's happening in that space. And what is very important to everyone is the privacy of their health information. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, again, that is something I discuss um, and cover pretty thoroughly in the book, uh, pointing out what, what some of the issues uh, are around privacy and what are the laws that uh, relate to privacy of your health information and how you as a patient can uh, oversee your pri- the privacy and, and make sure that it's being uh, maintained. I give the book is filled with anecdotal stories. Um, these stories are based on real life situations that um, I've either um, heard from various patients who who have relayed these stories to me, or uh, stories that I have um, found in my research. And uh, privacy is one of those areas where. Uh, People are are just not aware of what their options are, uh, what the laws are, and um, what they can do about privacy issues. And yet they know in a kind of an underlying overriding issue that they walk around with, patients walk around with, is, you know, the question of uh, is my health information being kept confidential? And it's, it's a real concern. What do you think the healthcare system is going to look like in the next 25 years? Um, well, uh, I contend and describe in the book a situation where, uh, first and foremost, um, there will be, when a, ba- when a baby is born, uh, there will be an electronic health record started at the moment of birth, and that record will contain all of the initial blood tests and um, intelligence tests and so forth that are um, done immediately at birth, 
uh, and that health record will go along with you forever. Uh, there won't be a question of people uh, having to create their own personal health record. It will be there. Um, I also project in the future that uh, we'll be seeing a lot more robotic uh, involvement in medical issues, that there'll be a lot more remote um, procedures and, and so forth that are being done by robots, um, both in the operating room and in the clinic. Uh, I predict that uh, personalized medicine, which is based on a DNA analysis, which will again be done for every person at birth, will eventually be the uh, model that we'll see in the future. Uh, it's going to be interesting times in the future, and there's a lot of exciting things that are going to happen. Um, a lot will depend on how we resolve some of the uh, payment incentives, and, and privacy will definitely always loom as an issue as we have more and more technology available. But um, it's going to be an interesting future. Give us some closing thoughts, Nancy, about your book, E-Patients Live Longer. This is a book I think that is important for every person who is dealing with a health care issue. And at some point in our life, uh, we all have to deal with a health care issue, whether it's for ourselves, our family, our parents. Um, and I feel that this is a guidebook. I, I wrote it um, because I feel very strongly that this guidebook is, is important for people um, to understand how to use the web intelligently um, how and why you need a personal health record, uh, why you should encourage your physician to communicate with you um, in a more open, uh, collaborative way, and uh, to use email and e-visits to engage in ongoing communications. How often do we leave an office visit with a doctor and say, oh, my gosh, I should have asked this, I should have asked that question, and uh, there need to be open communication channels such as email and e-visits that will enable you to do that. I certainly feel this book is very important for those individuals who are trying to manage a chronic illness because I get into um, a whole discussion about um, all the various devices that are available for telemonitoring um, that enable you to communicate your uh, vitals with your doctor right from your home or office. It's important to protect your safety when you're hospitalized and when you when, know when you need an advocate, and those issues are also discussed, as well as your insurance choices and your privacy issues. So it's important that patients become much more participatory in their health care and uh, take charge and collaborate with their team of providers to make sure that they're getting the best possible care. The title of the book, E-Patients Live Longer, The Complete Guide to Managing Your Healthcare Using Technology. Nancy B. Finn is the author. Nancy, tell us how to get your book. The book is available um, on Amazon, on Barnes & Nobles, and on several other online resources. It's, it's produced in hardcover, softcover, and as an e-book, um, which can be downloaded to a Kindle or a Nook or any of the other e-book devices, uh, certainly to an iPad um, or an iPhone. Uh, it's uh, available as a print-on-demand book, which um, means that when you order it, it will be on your desk the next day um, if, if you so choose. And um, it's something that everybody who is dealing with a health care issue should 
make sure they have read through. Thank you, Nancy, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Uh, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Qualified. Candidate Resumes and the Threshold for Presidential Success. And the author is Jamin Soderstrom. And Jamin joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jamin. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. Well, this is going to be a great discussion about how to choose the right president, how to choose the right candidate. This is timely and uh, just a real direct approach that everyone needs to consider very seriously. Let me read what you have written. Qualified is an original analysis focused on determining what qualifications are most important in predicting whether a candidate will become a successful president. Based on extensive research, statistical data, and an insightful examination of the constitutional, historical, and practical job responsibilities of every American president, qualified, takes conventional political wisdom and turns it on its head with respect to the 220-year-old question, what makes a person qualified to become president? Well, that is a great question, and certainly you have done tremendous amount of research. How to answer that? Tell us about your background, Jamin, and why you decided to do this. 
Well, I've been reading serious presidential and American history for over a decade now, and um, during that time, I really developed an academic curiosity about which presidents were actually qualified when they were elected or when they actually got the job. And during all my reading, I'd never found a book uh, that really specifically discussed pre-presidential qualifications, and that was disappointing to me, so I decided to go ahead and take all of my reading and turn it into uh, my own book that answered my question. And it also made sense to me just as a your average concerned voter. Uh, I wanted a practical way to determine which candidates that I was consider voting for would actually become successful in a historical sense uh, if they were actually elected. Uh, the politicians and commentators on television and in the other news media didn't seem to be answering that question to uh, in as detailed a way as I wanted them to. And so I took the familiar form that most uh, my readers will be familiar with, the modern professional resume, and I decided to go ahead and create a resume for each of the 43 presidents and also 17 uh, current or possible presidential candidates. And uh, I think the results turned out both interesting and uh, pretty practical. We have to remember as voters, as American citizens, that we're hiring a, a man or a woman to run this country. It's an incredibly huge responsibility, and therefore, from your point of view, they have to have a, a lot of different experiences and skills, and it is, it's much more than a personality contest, which often... It seems the election process turns into a personality kind of, uh, you know, uh, popularity contest. Oh, absolutely. Um, and likability and how much you agree with or disagree with a candidate is, of course, important, and voters should always consider that. But what I did was just look at the Constitution and see what the actual job responsibilities the president has. And based on those job responsibilities, just like any employer would, uh, I broke down uh, the responsibilities into eight categories that actually directly relate to what a president would be doing if elected. And those categories are fairly simple. They start with legislative experience, executive experience, military experience, and foreign experience. Those are all four core responsibilities of every president, and then also four other experiences or abilities. We have private work experience, which everyone can understand uh, a president should, or most presidents do have some private work experience. Then we have education intellect. You'd like the president to be at least intelligent enough and educated enough to deal with the very complicated problems that every president will face. And then, of course, you had communication ability broken down into public speaking ability and writing ability. And, it, and that's important just in the way presidents communicate with the voters, with the legislature, with foreign governments and representatives, and uh, with their own staff and the public. So those eight categories really encompass all of the potential uh, responsibilities and problems a president has to deal with during his four or eight year term. And so starting from the Constitution, those eight categories made the most sense to to uh, be put on a presidential resume. And it was um, 
fairly easy to then go back and look at presidents and candidates' qualifications in those areas and give them a, an objective ranking and see how qualified they really were. So you completely ignored political party affiliation? Uh, for the objective qualifications, yes, I did. Uh, it didn't matter if you were starting from the beginning of the union, a Federalist or a Democratic Republican, or later on a Whig or a Republican or the modern Democratic Party. Um, that didn't factor into the objective qualifications and the scores and ranks of the resumes. However, there was one more category that wasn't factored into the scoring and ranking part, and those were intangible personal characteristics that every candidate and president will have and that, of course, voters need to be mindful of. And I, in the book, I use 12 examples of intangible personal characteristics, but and some of them are character and integrity, age, race, gender, and political affiliation, ideology, all of those categories uh, also are very important and shouldn't be ignored. They should just come secondary to the basic qualifications of the candidate or the president. Now, as you looked at history, did you choose some models to follow? Uh, as you looked at past presidents, were there some that just stood out as the model or a few of them that stood out as the model for the most successful president? Well, there certainly were uh, model presidents in our history, and but those didn't necessarily tie exactly to how qualified they originally were. Uh, but most did. There was a strong correlation between being uh, a qualified candidate and ultimately being a successful president. Now, of course, almost all of the historical rankings of presidents have George Washington, Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt as the great presidents and and the their resumes would actually show that they were each qualified to be president and so this wasn't really a surprise of course they faced some of the most serious challenges in American history as president and thus deserve their high ranking as a great president but the question I really looked at was whether we could have predicted such success or, in other cases, such failure based on their qualifications when the American public was first electing them. And uh, in George Washington's case, he was a great candidate. He had great qualifications, military experience, legislative experience, executive experience, some foreign experience. He was a, a good writer who was made better by his many uh, excellent writer aides, such as Alexander Hamilton and uh, correspondence and collaboration with James Madison and other of the founding fathers. So George Washington was certainly uh, the archetype for the president, and he was very well qualified for that position. And uh, FDR was very well qualified as well. I think he came in and the great ranking for his qualifications as well. He had a tremendous amount of executive experience. He was a fantastic public speaker. He was a good writer, and he had a combination of other experiences and abilities that really made him a strong candidate and really helped us predict that he could become a 
historically great president. Now, uh, Lincoln, the traditionally the third, well, one of the three greatest presidents in American history, is oftentimes criticized as being an unprepared president. But in my objective analysis, it really doesn't turn out that way. Lincoln had fantastic public speaking abilities. He was a great debater and a great speech giver. Uh, he was an excellent writer, up there with Thomas Jefferson as probably the best presidential writer. He had fantastic private work experience. He was an excellent attorney. He was the leader of the Whig Party in Illinois and then one of the founders of the Republican Party in Illinois um, and was that in that role for many years. And he also was a brilliant man. His education was all informal. He was self-taught, but nobody denied the fact that he was actually truly brilliant and his intellect made up for any lack of formal education. And so those three ended up being, Lincoln was above average qualified. He wasn't near great or great in his qualifications, but he still had the potential to become a great president. And that that's made clear by just objectively analyzing his uh, pre-presidential qualifications. Well, as you look at President Obama and his chances of re-election, how do you analyze that? Well, in 2008, when President Obama, then-candidate Obama, was running for office, uh, it turns out he had average qualifications. So he was, in fact, uh, worthy of con serious consideration for the presidency. He was not one of these below-average or poor-qualification candidates that really voters should think twice before considering him or her as a serious candidate for president. So that first point is important, that he was not an unqualified candidate. He certainly wasn't an above-average, near-great, or great qualified candidate, but he did meet the minimum threshold, as I discussed throughout the book, making him... Uh, a candidate that deserves serious consideration, and he has a fairly good probability of becoming a successful president historically. Um, at least he did in 2008. Now the question is about incumbency and how to choose whether to vote to re-elect an incumbent, such as President Obama, or vote for a challenger, such as one of the current Republican candidates, Mitt Romney, Rick Perry, Newt Gingrich, Ron Paul, any of them. And it was really interesting doing this historical analysis. I found that a total of 10 presidents have actively campaigned for re-election and lost to a challenger. And nine out of those 10 challengers who successfully defeated an incumbent actually met the qualified threshold and were qualified candidates and became uh, fairly successful presidents in many respects. In fact, I think six or seven of the candidates actually were better presidents than the incumbents that they defeated. And the one out of ten who didn't meet the qualified threshold was actually an interesting case study because that was Grover Cleveland. Now, Grover Cleveland was, readers will remember, the president who was elected to two non consecutive terms. He was elected, then he was defeated by Benjamin Harrison, and then he was re-elected, defeating then-President Benjamin Harrison 
uh, four years later. And so that case, it, it's a little different because uh, he had already been a president who the voters liked, and he only narrowly was defeated by Benjamin Harrison and came back to be the true comeback kid. And and so that case study is is very difficult to apply to modern times. So in reality, what voters, if you're a Republican or if you're a conservative and seek President Obama's defeat, you should really be concerned that if you nominate a person who does not meet the qualified threshold and does not have the basic minimum qualifications to be president, there is a high likelihood that President Obama will be reelected. But if you do nominate a challenger who is qualified to be president, there is a much better chance that President Obama uh, will either face a very close election or, in fact, be defeated by that qualified challenger. Now, uh, my book does go ahead and focus and provide sample presidential resumes for actually 17 current or potential presidential candidates. And, and that's probably an area of the book that many readers will be interested in looking at. And that's in Appendix B. I didn't want to break up the flow of the book and insert dozens of resumes right in the middle of the book. So readers will be interested in flipping to Appendix B and going ahead and looking at all of the qualifications of the current Republican field, as well as uh, Vice President Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, who some have speculated may mount a uh, challenge to for the Democratic nomination against Obama. Well, you have uh, several candidates running for the Republican nomination that you deem unqualified, and uh, and then there's a list, a smaller list who fall into the average, above average, and near great categories of qualified. And uh, we will encourage people to uh, seek that out and find out who they are and the way you see them and, and, and why. Uh, give us some closing thoughts, Jamin, about your book. Well, I think one of the most interesting and most important parts of the book is what I've called the resume challenge. And it's something readers can really take away from the book and implement in their own lives and in the presidential campaigns generally. Uh, it just challenges readers to go ahead and insist that if you're going to vote for a candidate, you would actually like to see their professional official resume and make your own evaluation and your own educated vote voting decision based on their basic qualifications. It, it's a way to stop following the current trend of caring more about likability and caring more about political agreement and actually seeing which candidate who are among the candidates you might support actually has the best probability of becoming a successful president. Um, Another thing I really want readers to take away from my book is the fact that I don't expect everyone to agree with these rankings, these scorings. Uh, if you think President Obama, uh, his resume in 2008 was too high or too lowly scored, then uh, you should feel free to go ahead and and go through the analysis yourself using objective historical facts and come to your own conclusion. Uh, my book in the end, isn't perfect, and I completely understand that. But hopefully it will be the beginning of a great public conversation about the presidential election system and how to improve that system so that 
voters can consistently elect presidents who have the experiences and abilities and intangible personal characteristics that will actually enable them to become successful by historical standards. And all that means is 50 years, 100 years down the road, we want our children and grandchildren to look back and say, yes, they went ahead and elected a president who was faced with serious challenges and met them head-on and was successful and led the country in a better direction. The title of the book, Qualified, Candidate Resumes and the Threshold for Presidential Success. And the author is Jamin Soderstrom. Jamin, tell us how to get your book. Well, my book is now available on barnesandnoble.com, it's available on amazon.com, and it's available on iUniverse.com. And so if you just Google my name or Google the title of the book, Qualified, Candidate Resumes and the Threshold for Presidential Success, it should pop up. And very shortly, I will be launching a website, a blog, and some other social media accounts so people can... uh, Go ahead and look online and find me, uh, and hopefully they'll like the book, enjoy the book, tell their friends about the book, and uh, we can really make an impact on the 2012 election and beyond. Jamin, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.